0: Welcome to the podcast series Interviews and Conversations presented by the Basler Afrika Bibliographien. Today's episode features a reading by the South African writer Louis Nkosi. Louis Nkosi, born in Embo, KwaZulu Natal in 1936, was an acclaimed journalist, writer and professor of literature in various African and European countries as well as in the United States. Living in exile since 1960, he resided in Basel, Switzerland between 1997 and 2010. On the 11th of November 1999, he gave a reading from his yet unpublished novel Mandela's Ego at the Basler-Africa Bibliographien. In the following recording, he explains his motivation to write about the day Mandela is arrested, reads from his novel, and reflects about the challenges of also writing in his mother tongue, Isisulu.
1: Uh, I... I don't know whether uh, many of you uh, uh, know the story of of how Mandela was on the run, and he was um, described as he was described as the the Black Pimpernel after the Red Pimpernel, and and the story of how he was arrested always makes make me, I shouldn't say things like this, yeah, it did make me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, Mandela used, those of you who have read the the biography of Mandela will will know the story of how he was arrested. But he used to drive around Johannesburg um, pretending to be a chauffeur for, for Cecil Williams. Who was a member of the Communist Party, which was not such a good idea for men on the run to be the- in the Communist Party. <laughs> so uh, Mandela tells the story of how once he was, he was driving his car and he stopped at the lights, and and Spengler, whom I knew because we used to uh, to interrogate him to ask him to give us statements for, for our newspaper uh, and Spengler was looking for, for Mandela and, and he, it was going to be a great honor to, uh, to apprehend Mandela. Yeah. So there was Mandela parking his car um, and pretending to be a chauffeur and there was Major Spengler parking next to him in, and Nelson says he, he saw Spengler looking at him and thought, this is the end. Now, I, you know, he's got hold of me. Only to find that Major Spengler, you know, was did not recognize him and he drove past. Um, so, um, I I... I tried to write a a novel, which I'm working on at the moment. This is what I'm going to read for you uh, before I read a passage or two from Matingberg. The novel is about, I studied it at at the University of uh, of Brandeis, at Brandeis University, where I was teaching literature as well as writing. And I had um, these nice kids. And in order to inspire them to start writing, I said, okay, I will start a novel myself so that, uh, you know, I can read it for you and you read me your stories. And so we connect that way. So they said, so what are you going to write about? So I said, I'm going to write about a man uh, whose uh, main uh, weakness is uh, hero worship. This man identifies with Mandela to the extent uh, that when Mandela is finally apprehended, um, he loses his sexual powers and he was known to be a womanizer. But on the day that Mandela is apprehended, he goes completely impotent uh, and... um, (laughs) and and this lasts for 27 years until Mandela is born. <laughs> so so my students said said you know you know we all talk about the architecture of, of writing you know when you're writing a novel and and it's sometimes it, these are just practical problems so my students asked a very practical uh, question and they said so what does this man do for the during the 27 years while man is in jail? You can't just have him knocking about and not having, uh, uh, you know, not solving his problem. So, so I had to invent a whole range of. Uh, of things that he has to do to fill in the time, and also uh, to make sure that it's believable. This passage of time, historical time, is a problem for writers. Yeah, uh, but this this bit is about the day Mandela is arrested, returning from Durban, and I tried to mix real history, what actually happened, uh, with a few lies. Yeah. So I'll read both the history and the lies. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, I, I used to work for a, a Zulu newspaper when I started, uh, as a journalist called the Ilang Alasenatao. Um It used to be a good paper uh, before it was bought by some people who later became opposed to the ANC or to the liberation struggle. Um, so, uh, I, I made a joke about, about Ilang in the 1980s, you know, when it started going bad and it started telling telling lies. But it was called, um, in the novel, it's called Ik Iniso. I- Ik Iniso means the, the truth-teller. So, I'll read um, a little bit of it. It was on the distant uh, cousin of Nobush, a bus driver with the Devon Tourist Company, who brought to Monday news of Mandela's capture. The announcement in heavy black headlines was all over the front page of the Zulu newspaper. How, on returning from a clandestine visit to the freedom fighters of the Devon underground, Mandela and his chauffeur had been overtaken by a car full of special branch detectives. Two other cars drove up from the rear, cutting the fugitives off from any possibility of escape. The story was there on the front page of the soiled, tarted newspaper Quiniso, which, although its name meant the truth, was infamous for telling lies, uh, but which for once seemed to be telling the truth. Uh, for who could invent such an entrancing story that after weeks and months of trying to run down their quarry on a fine Sunday afternoon along a stretch of Durban johannesburg Highway, Mandela should drive his damaged little opel straight into a police cordon? It wasn't uh, an opel, by the way. I, mean, uh, <laughs> I had to invent that. <laughs> Under, the, under his disguise of a chauffeur's white dust coat and cap, he clean so reported that under questioning, Mandela first gave his name as a certain David Mothemai. For the detectives, this was caused for, mer- for some merriment. Ugh <laughs> yeah, are not a detective joke. yo. Yeah, you most nurse in Mandela. Unshaven, hair disheveled, their eyes tired and bloodshot, heavily dead from hours of sleepless vigil in a car parked under a clump of trees by the roadside. I don't think they were parked under the streets, but I had to invent uh, They had taken hourly turns to watch the road for approaching cars, one of which, according to a well-placed police informer, would be carrying Mandela on his return journey to his Johannesburg hideout. A small posse of highly trained, highly disciplined, not to mention highly motivated men in three cars, each car containing three or four men, which brought the total to 15 heavily armed especially trained security officers. The officers could scarcely conceal their excitement, their complete satisfaction at the triumphant conclusion of their mission. Victory made them more affable than usual. In such circumstances, a little display of humor seemed hardly out of place. One officer leaned into the window of the car, your name, please? David Motsamai. Ah, oh, man, we know who you are. You are Nelson Mandela. A little banter in the voice, casual, self-satisfied. Then turning to the man in the driver's seat, and this is Cecil Williams. <laughs> you are both under arrest. During the vigil, the this, this strain of, uh, of waiting had been intolerable. To kill time, the officers had chain-smoked, drinking black coffee laced with brandy from paper cups, and had told many stale, dirty jokes. At night, opening the door of one of the cars, an officer thought he saw a snake rustling past in the trampled dew-decked grass. Not a big snake, but slim, so slim that it could hardly pass off as Mandela disguised as a reptile, perhaps attempting to slide past a, a police car. Of course, should Mandela stage another of his narrow escapes, the natives would gladly seize upon such an explanation. There were already many such stories going the rounds: how, once. Sighted Mandela was able to transform himself at will into a black bull, grazing nonchalantly in the countryside. During the waiting, one policeman, a tall man about 50, with a high forehead and receding hairline, was so much on edge that his stomach rumbled incessantly. From time to time he tried without success to suppress a fart and annoy some Order filled the car in which talk temporarily seemed to stop while the driver at the front pulled down the window. The officer's anxiety was met only by that of a younger man they called Johannes, who seemed in the grip of an eternal agitation. Johannes brooded darkly, smoked endless cigarettes, And when they offered him a snifter of brandy to calm his nerves, he pointedly refused it, pushing it away with a meaningful gesture of prim disapproval at the lapse of discipline among his superiors. If if he shoots, Johannes kept repeating, we will take him on. We shouldn't mess around with him. No shooting, Colonel Katzenberger said. He turned to look to all the men around him, one by one. Understand? No shooting. At headquarters, they want him taken alive. After all, we can't question that dead man. What if he's armed? the young man protested? He disliked the colonel's lofty tone of worldly sophistication. Captain Moronstead, who played rugby for Natal Police 15, let it be known that if Mandela attempted to pass, he would tackle him to the ground without much trouble. I know he used to be a boxer, but that was a long time ago when he was a stripy young cock. He may think he is still fit, but I am a damn lot fitter than he is, I promise you. <laughs> Ask Van Zale here. <laughs> Young Clep Van Zale was enamored of the hunt for its own sake. He had little illusion about the state being able to withstand the final onslaught by the hordes of armed natives trying to overrun a larger. ...of badly outnumbered white men on the African continent. Um, addressing no one in particular, he rambled on, "...doubtless the future of this continent belongs to the natives. Anyone with an iota of sense can see that clear as daylight. But that doesn't mean we will sit here and wait for the natives to take everything without a big fight." What I'm saying is, this is not yet Mandela's time. We must take, we must make the natives pay dearly in pay for whatever they take. They must win every battle, every inch of territory by force of arms. And I can tell you, I'm looking forward to all the battles which are yet to come. Meanwhile. While we're in control, let every white man, woman, and child extract the best advantage they can before we go under. In short, let's have a
0: party. Did you ever feel the urge of writing in your mother or father language? Oh, I've done it.
1: Yeah. I, I have been a nice story that uh, will amuse some of you. Uh, we recently... No, not so recent but it, um, in the late 1980s uh, we were uh, a friend of mine uh, Stanley glasser is um, the composer one of those clever Jewish boys who went to Cambridge and, and collected straight A's from in the music department of Cambridge so he, 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 he became um, a, a good composer, and he's now the head of the uh, music department at, uh, at Goldsmith uh, College. But Stanley used to go to Zululand uh, as a as a young boy. He he, he speaks Zulu very well, and he used to go to Zul, uh, to Zululand to spend. Uh, his vacation from school with the um, the servant who worked for the family and when the servant went back uh, to spend time in, uh, in the rural uh, district of Zuland uh, he would take little Stanley with him uh, so when the king singers well, I don't know whether some of you know about the king singers and they, they, they sing you know, uh, mostly medieval songs. And, and they are very, and Baba Shop songs. And very good. So for their 10th anniversary of being together, they'd gone to school with, with Stanley in, in Cambridge. So they asked Stanley, uh, if he could write something <coughs> for them, uh, a cycle of about six songs. And, and they were going to to sing these songs in Zulu, yeah. and boy, that was a lot of work. I mean, first <laughs> <laughs> Stanley asked me if I if I would consider writing this uh, cyclos of Zulu um, songs. So I I agreed because this was a great opportunity. Uh, for me, and but then, that was only the starts It was all very well for him to to compose notations, I mean, for you know, for melodies and so. on But uh, we had to to get this um, this Englishman who didn't speak a word of uh, uh, of Zulu to start singing in Zulu. So we had these sessions in which uh, we had to teach them how to to pronounce uh, the Zulu words. And they they recorded a whole album of those those songs, and and that's still being played around the world. But what I'm trying to answer is is the question you put, whether I've considered writing things in my own language. And I did I did some of those things, and Stanley and I also wrote a, a long choral uh, thing in uh, in Zulu, which the the London Symphony Orchestra uh, recorded for the BBC, and and that was the story you you must know it that uh, it's an old African legend, uh, the chameleon and the lizard. In, that God um, made up his mind that men must not die, or women, <coughs> women must not die, and sent uh, chameleon to tell uh, human beings that they are not going to die. And chameleon got sidetracked by, by berries, you know, uh, and started uh, eating all this stuff, and took his time, and then meanwhile God uh, changed his mind and, and uh, said, okay, I've changed my mind, said lizard, lizard goes like this, and go, go and tell man that I've changed my mind and man must die. And when, when I was growing up, the Zulus always killed uh, a lizard because they, they considered it, that the lizard was responsible for that. <laughs> But this was a long uh, piece of work with probably about ninety uh, odd lines um, that uh, Stanley and I um, wrote for the London Symphony Orchestra. So I'm not I'm not foreign to working in my own language, but I have to say that I find it these days much uh, easier to to. To think in English and to dream in English, and the odd thing about that is that my grandmother, who, to whom I dedicated my novel, uh, she she didn't speak um, English or not much, except you know just carrying out orders from her white employers. But these days, when I um, when I'm dreaming about her, because I dream about her. Look, uh, she's always talking to me in English, in English. and I yeah, and I find this most extraordinary <laughs>
0: because I
1: I don't I don't know how she can express herself so vividly in English. I mean, so it tells you a lot about um, the unconscious and the mind of of, of of writers and how you filter things through. Through your own consciousness, and then attribute these things to to the people you write about, so that um, you have uh, people who who never could have spoken Russian if you're Russian, if you write
0: in Russian, you have your grandmother speaking Russian to you.